And our scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to him, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn from them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is even within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of egypt the lord your god brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the lord your god commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. Um, I'm Pastor Rich, uh, the pastor here at Risen. If you're new, I want to welcome you to our church. Uh, Man, it's so good to start off the new year with new people uh, visiting, and I hope that you find a church, whether it's here or somewhere else, because what is church? Church is not listening to a sermon online, right? Church is not a building. Church is the people. Um, With that being said, we're continuing our theology sermon series in 2024, and Theology just means the study of God. That's all it means, right? Like biology is the study of life. Well, theology is the study of God. And what we've been doing the past several weeks is we've been unpacking the Bible's teaching of covenant. And uh, you should know what covenant is by now. Um, but uh, I remember, I, I, I was re- I'm always humbled when people come up to me and 
they want to give me feedback on my sermon. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was a good sermon, Pastor Rich. I'm like, oh, thanks. Uh, you know, uh, what did you like about it? And they're like, oh, just the way you talked about Galatians and the law and the gospel. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't talk about Galatians. And then, you know, I remember this person was like, oh, my bad. That was the sermon I listened to by Tim Keller. My bad, my bad. <laughs> and so that has stuck with me, obviously. Uh, and so what I do up here is I, I try to remind y'all <laughs> what I talk about. Um, and, and this is maybe more for my own uh, was it self-esteem then for your uh, memory, but a covenant is just a relationship and commitment. That's what it is, right? Uh, sometimes we love having all these relationships with no commitment. Sometimes uh, we love commitment, but we don't want to be in a relationship, right? Well, what do you want from me? What do you need? Hey, I'll call you. I need this. Can you do this? Can you do this? Right? But covenant is both a very sincere relationship where you love each other, you want to be with each other. There is authentic uh, love and affection, but it's also commitment, right? Even when you don't want to do something, even when you are inconvenienced, when you are uncomfortable, you are there. That's what a covenant is. And previously, what we've seen throughout the Bible is the story of God who is covenantally committed to his people. We saw how God was faithful to his covenant with Israel in the Exodus, in the Passover, and today what we're going to do, as you can tell right now, is we're going to see how God uses the Ten Commandments as a means to establish his relationship with his people. Because after God leads Israel out of Egypt, right, what, what is going on when Israel is in Egypt? They're living under a uh, ruthless king with ruthless laws. And so when God brings them out of Egypt, he's saying, look, now I'm your king and I'm going to give you a law, a different set of standards, and those laws you're going to live by is justice and love. Now, we're not going to be able to go over the Ten Commandments in depth. I, I, I hope that we'll be able to revisit them one day and kind of do a, a series on them. But what I'm going to do is sort of give a high-level view of the Ten Commandments um, and give us a framework and structure of why God gave us these Ten Commandments. So the first thing... Uh, uh, that I want to talk about is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> we live in a time, right, where things age out quickly. Uh, the other day, I was complaining about how slow my, my phone was, and my friend asked me, uh, what kind of phone do you have? And I said, I have an iPhone X. And she said, that is so old. You need to get a new phone. And I said, I've, I've had this only for five years. She said, five years? You know, she said it like it was like 20, I don't know. And she was like, you need to get a new phone. Um, man, my phone still it has face ID. It has like, I don't know, 128 gigabytes. Um, I can, you know, watch TV on it. I can listen music on it. I could drive with, with maps on it. And it's not enough. That's the times we live in. So who dares to propose that 10 laws for human behavior written over 3,000 years ago should be a linchpin of our lives and the basis for society? Who dares to make a statement like that? Could you imagine, right? You're in a work meeting and people, you're, you know, maybe your director, your manager, or your, you know, executive saying, we need, we, need to, we need to revamp this dashboard. We need to revamp this product. You know, I've got an idea. It's 3,000 years old. Who dares to make a statement like that? The new is better than the old, obviously. Or is it? It's actually funny if you think about it, how quickly the new becomes old and the old becomes new. 
Back in the day, uh, in the day of the Ten Commandments, they all ate organic food, didn't they? And now here we are, 3,000 years later, eating organic food. And we're like, wow, we're hip. Back in the day, they didn't have the kind of technology we have today. And now here we are talking about minimalism and simplicity and unplugging as if it's revolutionary. The new doesn't necessarily mean better. Obviously, unless it's the New Testament, (laughs) right? Uh, Because in the New Testament, uh, Jesus says... Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, not a dot, not an iota from the law will pass away until all is fulfilled. Now, what does that mean? Well, heaven and earth was a euphemism to say everything in the created order, right? Top and bottom, A to Z. Therefore, Jesus is saying the law of God, the word of God is eternal and it's greater than anything in all of creation. I don't care what you've created. Yes, you know, Yosemite is amazing, Um, Uh, the nature is amazing, but what Jesus is saying, no, my word is still amazing, greater than that. How? How is that so, Jesus? Uh, Several, uh, you know, so funny, I I wrote several years back on this in my manuscript, and I looked it up. It was actually a decade back, so uh, it just shows how time flies, but uh, I want to share this quote by Jim Carrey, one of the greatest comedians of all time. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go watch Ace Ventura, all right? (laughs) Jim Carrey, I I hope I'm not canceling myself here. I hope there's nothing nothing shady in that movie, okay? From what I remember, it was very PC. But um, Jim Carrey gave a commencement speech at a university, and this is what he said. He said, I've often said that I wished people could realize all their dreams of wealth and fame so they could see that it's not where you'll find your sense of completion. I'm at the top of the mountain, And I still don't have peace, but a feeling of divine dissatisfaction. That peace that we're after lies somewhere beyond our personality, beyond the perception of others, right? Lies beyond what people think of us. That's what he's saying. Beyond invention, beyond hiding, beyond our efforts itself. He says, your fears are writing a script. And the working title is, it'll never be enough. It's funny, when Jim Carrey was giving this commitment speech, like, no one was applauding. (laughs) And to break the ice, he would just do something really silly. Maybe this is not something you want to hear at a commencement speech, that um, nothing you accomplish is ever going to satisfy you. What Jim Carrey is really saying, he's saying that the human soul is so great that there is nothing in this world that can fill it. So the pursuit of this world, if that's all you give your soul, what he's saying is your, your soul will never be at peace. Your soul will shrivel up. You won't be satisfied because your soul was meant to be infused with the very character of God, which is outlined in the Ten Commandments, the very truth and justice and love and compassion and wisdom of God. That's the thesis of this passage. That's the purpose of this passage. In verse 1, right, it starts off, Hear now, O Israel, the laws, the laws, the just laws I'm about to teach you, follow them so that you may live. So if you really want to live, the only thing that can come into your life and give you meaning and fulfillment is the goodness and character and presence and spirit of God. 
brings us to our second point, the motives for the Ten Commandments. So we understand the purpose, right? Because that's what we were created for, to be filled with the character and the majesty and the power of God. But what is the motive? There are three motivations for us to uh, listen to the Ten Commandments. The first is that the Ten Commandments reveal who God is. You know, we live in a world where we want love and grace from each other, but we don't want any of each other's truths, right? We live in a world where people want to hear about God's love and God's grace, but we don't live in a world where people want to hear about God's truth. But if we really want to know who God is, we just can't know him in his love and compassion. We also have to know him in his truth. Right? This is the same in all relationships. Just imagine, you, 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 know, you can't go to your friend and say, you know, I, I really don't want to know what you're passionate about. I don't, I don't want to know your convictions and your principles and your values. I just want you to like, be there for me when I need you. That's not a covenantal relationship, is it? That's consumeristic. It's essentially saying I'll only be friends with people who think and live exactly like me. But that's unreasonable and unwise, and it's actually a reason why we have so much division in this world. So the first motivation to know the Ten Commandments is that God is telling us who he is, what he cares about, and how he's designed the world to be. And so it's us saying, God, I'm thankful that you listen to me. I'm thankful that you know me. I'm thankful that you care about me, and I want to do the same. I want to know you. I want to listen to you. I want to understand why these things are important to you. So that's the first thing, is to know God. Now, uh, in verse 2, it says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. So this tells us that God is the one who makes a covenant with us. Before anything we do, before anything we've done, God says, I am committed to you. I want to be in relationship with you. This is based on nothing you can offer and nothing you can do. And then in verse 6, God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he tells us, because I have chosen this relationship with you out of grace, out of gratitude, out of my own volition, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you realize how important that that sequence is? Right? First, God tells us, I have made a covenant with you. So the basis of this covenant is all God. It's his rescuing love. It's the power of his grace that brought Israel out of sin, darkness, and death. And out of that history, right, Israel is to worship God out of gratitude, you see, out of joy, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not to earn God's love, but to be grateful for God's love. And that's really important because the second motivation to know and listen to the Ten Commandments is gratitude. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for delivering me from sin and death and procuring my soul for eternal life. God, I want to follow you. I trust you because you've saved me. I want to listen to you. Even in the Old Testament, it was all about grace. It was all about the gospel first. And that's really important because if you reverse the sequence, for example, if you were to put, you know, verses 6 to 7 before 2, 3, It says, you shall have no other gods before me. It starts off like that, and then it will end, and I will make a covenant with you, right? 
That's work-based. And we will always feel guilty, and we will always feel short, and we will always feel unworthy to be in a relationship with God, to testify and witness to our faith, to serve Him. But the gospel says, no, none of that is, none of that is, is the basis for, for how you follow me. Now, the third motivation for knowing the Ten Commandments is fear. Now, when some of us hear that fear is a motive to know God, we, we may have a knee-jerk reaction uh, because we are used to people using fear uh, to uh, manipulate their control upon us. Uh, but God doesn't do that. He doesn't use his anger to control us, to do things that he, so that he can get what he wants. No, God talks about fear not so much as an emotion, but as a perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, when I, uh, I tell Luke, there's a common commandment that I tell Luke. It's the, it's the first commandment in the Hong household, and that is, thou shalt not touch any electric outlets, right? That is, that is the first commandment. This will go for you and for your family after you, Luke. Uh, I'm not, right? I'm trying to tell him, you got to be afraid if you don't listen to wisdom and how the natural order of things work. I'm not domineering him to submission, right? I'm not trying to use him to get what I want. Um, I'm trying to understand, help him understand how the world works. He needs, to, he needs to understand that he is not above how the world works. He doesn't get to drive recklessly, right, you know, when he gets older and not get into car accidents, you see? That's a healthy fear. It's a healthy fear. It's good for society. It's good for ourselves. It's good for our relationships. Now, one of the things God wants us now to have a healthy fear of is, a, is to have a healthy fear of giving ourselves to idols. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you notice the second commandment, it's, it's one of the longest commandments in the Ten Commandments, right? God is saying, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness that is in heaven above or on earth beneath uh, that is in the water under the earth. You not, shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God and a jealous God, visiting the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth of those who hate me. Now, this is very interesting because when we look at this, we probably think this is irrelevant to us. The second commandment, oh, I'm not bowing down to a wooden statue or a marble statue. But you know what those statues symbolized back in the day, right? It symbolized wealth, money, security fertility, beauty, power. In our culture, we have different wooden marble statues, and those are the idols that have power over our lives. Because all an idol is is just something you go to for security, for comfort, for joy, for life, and hope. And in our area, definitely success and career and money and comfort and security, these things are idols in our culture that our culture desires, serves, and worships. And we have to have a healthy fear of getting caught up in that idolatrous culture. Why? Well, one, what's interesting is that God says that the sin of the idolatry is going to be visited upon our children to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? 
What that means is that these idols in our culture have generational power over us. You see? What it means is that it's very possible for one generation of Christians to be passionate about Jesus, go on mission with Jesus, honor the word of God, but as, if we, as we have children, if we are not intentional in passing down the worship of God, the teaching of his word, the power of the gospel, but we instead prioritize in our families idols of comfort and security and success and career, it is very possible that our children will not come to know Jesus, they will not live with him, and we will not see them in heaven. That's what God is saying. And then when they have children, it's very possible that their children may not even ever hear the gospel or ever get to read or hear the word of God and just be bound and consumed by the culture, the idols in our culture, you see. That's what God is saying. That's how destructive the worship of idols is. And what's very interesting is that the second commandment and the fourth commandment, those two commandments are the longest ones, and they're actually sort of corollaries, right? Because what does the fourth commandment say? The fourth commandment says, observe the Sabbath day, right? It's the positive command of the negative command of the second commandment. The second commandment says, don't worship work. And then the fourth commandment says, you need to rest from work. So you don't worship it. So how do you not worship work? You just got to rest. What is that Hebrew word for rest? It's stop. You got to literally stop. Just stop. And he says, keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you will work and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a stop day, a rest day to the Lord. On it you shall do no work, neither you or your children. Your daughter, your son, your male servant, your female servant, not even your animals. I mean, I think that may mean our cars. I think that may mean our products. Maybe that also means even causing others to work, maybe pinging them on a, on a Sabbath day and perpetuating this culture of idol worship. And then God says, why? I love this. He, he roots it deeply in, in theology. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. What is he saying? He's connecting work to slavery. That's what he's saying. He's like, you are bound by your work, right? You are bound by your work. And it's as if you're not experiencing the exodus that God gave the Israelites, which was an instance of terrible work as they were slaves in Egypt. And what he's saying is like, yeah, you're out of there, but you're, you're, still, you're still now bound by the power of darkness to other idols in this world. And you're not worshiping me with your freedom. It's interesting, isn't it? God spends more time explaining this commandment not to work and to rest than the command to not murder. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Like, this is more important than the command to not murder, the command not to commit adultery, and the command not to bear false witness. Why is that? Because there is something foundational about the second and fourth commandment that is directly tied to the freedom we need from sin. And he's saying, if you can't do this, you can't do anything. If you can't get free from this, you cannot get free from anger, from bitterness, from resentment, from lying, from cheating, from stealing. This, who you worship, what you do, how you rest, that is the first thing. 
So God tells his people to rest, be free from work, to live in the freedom, to love and worship God. So on the one hand, God is telling his people to fear him in order that we understand how the world works spiritually. We think we're in control, but when we are uh, addicted to work, no, we're not in control. That's what God is saying. On On the other hand, God says, fear not, fear not. What does that mean? When Israel is fleeing Egypt, they are afraid because Pharaoh is right on their heels. God is freeing them. God will free them. But they are close to destruction. In this way, God is testing Israel's faith. God could have freed Israel in a way that would have never caused them to doubt. You know? Like God could give you everything that you're looking for without ever causing you to suffer, without ever causing you to doubt, without ever causing you to stress, without ever causing you to lose sleep. But God frees us in a way that tests our faith. That whatever we're hoping for, as he tests our faith, we'll say, God, I still trust you. I'm still going to follow you in the midst of it. I'm still going to serve you. You are more important than these things. And then it says here in Exodus 14, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I don't know about you, but there are so many things in my life that causes me to be afraid. And I think that when we are afraid, we feel like it's up to us to fight, isn't it? It's all up to us. We've got to fight to make our insecurities and our pain and our fears go away. But God tells us, do not be afraid because I am fighting for you. Isn't that profound? He is the one who is going ahead of you and he is clearing the path of your fears and your insecurities and your anxieties and your pain. By the very power of his word and his spirit, he is sustaining your very breath and your very soul. And so if you are going through something tremendously difficult right now, God is saying to you, you don't have to be afraid. I'm already fighting for you. I'm I'm clearing the path. You just got to trust me. I'm going to deliver you. Because seeking control and living a life of seeking control never gives you peace. It's a a never-ending, futile quest, actually the kind of confidence um, of control that sometimes we feel like we have is just an illusion because whatever control we may think we have is just God giving us and allowing us that relatively comfortable season in our lives. It's it's God's control giving you that, that season. He is the one who deems what comes to pass in our lives. And in the uncomfortable seasons of your life, God is still in control. And though he's allowed it, he is using it to get our attention, to humble us and draw us to him because it's very easy when things are uncomfortable in our lives, it's because we worship these idols that have made our lives uncomfortable. And God wants to free us from that. Isaiah chapter 41 says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand 
It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. What this verse tells us is that when we feel like we don't have any strength left, when we feel like we don't have any joy left, when we feel like we don't have any hope or faith left, God is saying, I will give you that hope. I will give you that strength. He is the literal source from which we gather our hope and our strength. This brings us to the last point, the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. You know, so much of the time, we fear what other people will think of us. We fear what our future will be. We fear uh, what we don't have. We fear we're missing out. But we should be really fearing God. And, and when we're not doing that, we're living in bondage. We're living in the fear of the wrong things. We're living under the control of things other than God. We're not living in freedom. We're not living in love. We're not living in power. We're not living in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not living as God has created us to live. And so let me just close with this. At the end of the day, you and I, and I, I, I too, fail to purposely and motivationally live out the Ten Commandments, right? Every single day, we fail to love God and not to worship other things. We fail, right, to tell the truth as we fudge things, as we share things with other people. We fail to rest from our work. We fail to honor our family. And because of that, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to do what you and I cannot do. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this is a deeply profound statement. What Jesus is saying is, we all love the law. We all love the law when we're out for others, right? Like, I want justice. I'm coming out for you. But we hate the law when it's coming out for us. <laughs> like, can't you just show me grace? Why can't you just be relax? You know, like... What this just means is that every single one of us here, we fall short of the eternal, righteous law of God. That's what it means. And we need someone who can rise above others and say, look, I'm perfect. Y'all just need to listen to me. You can't point your finger at Jesus, can you? So Jesus takes it upon himself to fulfill the law for everyone. He lives perfectly for justice and love. And no one can ever point at him saying, you're being a critic, uh, hypocrite, right? Practice what you preach. And then he dies for our sins on the cross in order that we may be forgiven, in order that we may receive the Holy Spirit and have eternal life. 